Philippians 2, we'll read from chapter 1, verse 27, down through verse 18 of chapter 2. Philippians 1, verse 27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice, And service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. The reality TV show, I never thought I'd be talking about this in the pulpit, but the reality TV show, The Undercover Boss, I never have seen an episode, but I've seen it advertised. It ran for 11 years. That shocked me. I looked it up. Um, But... I thought the concept was intriguing, 
an owner of a company or a CEO goes to a location of the company and pretends to be you know, just an employee. So he's on the, the shipping dock or you know, maybe in some other part of the, the business and there he sees how things really are being run, he hears how people talk about management, he sees what the employees think about policies, all those sorts of things. Now obviously that's not a mom and pop shop, be hard for John Ferguson to slip into Fergan Dan's in disguise and fool his family into thinking that he's there, you know, it's just another employee. Uh, but you could think of like Sam Walton before he passed away, showing up at a Walmart and them not knowing who he was and pretending to be, you know, a stock boy. Um, so that kind of idea. So here's a person in authority who comes in disguise and he's able to slip among the people and see what they hear what they would say that they would never say to his face knowing that he's the person in authority. You have those kinds of pictures, not just in reality TV. Um, Ivanhoe, Sir Walter Scott, King Richard disguises himself as the Black Knight. Or later, in Robin Hood, King Richard comes to Robin Hood disguised as an abbot, a monk. And so here's the king able to slip through the, the population and they don't know who he is because he's disguised. And in each of those stories, Undercover Boss and Ivanhoe and Robin Hood, you have a mixture of historical fact and fiction. I mean, there really is a King Richard, right, etc. And I'm sure there really is a company, but there's got to be some fiction in those reality TV shows as well, right? Um, so a mixture of, of fact and fiction. But the book of Philippians tells the unvarnished truth of the coming of the king in the most shocking of fashions. And when he comes, he comes in a manner in which few recognize him. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul had explained how his own circumstances had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And it was his faith in how God was working through him, whether in life or in death, that allowed him to rejoice and to say that he would continue rejoicing. Then in verse 27, where we began reading, all the way through verse 18 of chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to the Philippians. Again, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so he gives them this general exhortation, and then he begins to spell it out with some specifics to their situation. And in the rest of chapter 1, verses 28, 29, 30, I believe he addresses them particularly about how they're going to relate to a culture that is hostile to the gospel, that is contrary to the gospel. How do you live in that kind of culture? He says to them in verse 28, not to be alarmed by their opponents. And here, I don't believe he's speaking about opponents within the body, although that can happen also. But here, it's this world. But then in chapter 2, he begins to talk to them about how they are going to have to relate to one another. When their preferences bump up against the preferences of someone else. And it creates friction and strife if they're not careful, if they're not walking carefully. In verse 2, 
He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. As he began that section in chapter 2, he didn't begin with a command, which he could have. Here's a stick. You better do this. But he really begins with a carrot, holding before them sweet motives. Look at what Christ has done. And if you've experienced this, you have, haven't you? And they have to say yes, if they're believers. Well, if you've experienced this, then make my joy complete and live this way. You see that in verse 1? Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete. But now in verse 5, a command does come. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then from verse 6 through 11, this attitude or this mindset of Christ is shown to us by portraying Christ in three different states. We see him in his pre-incarnate glory, how he was before he takes on flesh. And then we see him humbling himself to take on flesh, the incarnation. And then we see him after he ascends back to heaven, after his resurrection, in his post-incarnation glory, we might say. He's still incarnate, he's still wearing flesh, but the Bible says that after that, because of that, because he's obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, he's not just exalted, he's highly exalted and given a name above every name. So these three different states... These verses from verse 5 through verse 11 form a rich Christological hymn that has become one of the key passages teaching the two natures of Christ, that Christ is both God and man after his incarnation. Two natures within one person, completely God, completely man, the two not mingling together to make a, a third kind of morphed nature. He remains God he is man, distinctly. And both of these natures exist in the one person of Jesus Christ. Because of the richness of the text and uh, the, the teaching of it, the passage has been used to fight different errors that have crept up throughout history. So the passage has been used to, uh, to, to deal with the error of the docetists, which taught that Christ really wasn't flesh. Maybe he just appeared to be, but he wasn't really a man. Later, it was used to refute Arius and Arianism, which said, well, he wasn't really God. The passage deals with both of those things. Yet, as Paul writes this passage, he's not writing, the Holy Spirit knows this is coming down in history, but Paul isn't writing thinking about Docetists necessarily or Arianists. He's thinking about the Philippian church. And the culture they live in and the battles that they have to face. How could they stand fast and stand together in a culture that was not sympathetic to the gospel? And how would they maintain Christian unity when different preferences, preferences do rub against one another? And surface tensions are brought to the surface regarding selfish ambition or vain glory or vain conceit. These Things that, that lie in the heart, sometimes uncovered until these rubbing of preferences occur. 
the fact that Paul addresses this is actually very helpful for us because our natural bent is not to be considering others as more important than ourselves. Our natural bent is to be self-centered, to seek selfish ambition. We don't, by nature, look out for the interest of others. Unless we're just being nosy, right? <laughs> we're not, by nature, humble. We're proud. How will we obey the command to humility, to self-forgetfulness? And if that's what is necessary, how will we live a life worthy of the gospel when we wrestle to humble ourselves in this way? Verses 5 through 11 are Paul's answer to that question. And he answers it by pointing us not only to the pattern and the example of Christ, but also by pointing us to the source of help. The only one who can make us to humble ourselves like this can provide the resources we need to be able to consider others as more important than ourselves. This morning, we'll consider the command of verse 5, and then we'll consider the first two of those three states, his pre-incarnate state and his state in his incarnation, the humility. We'll begin with the command in verse 5. Verse 5 again have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And in the command, we do have an example to follow. This whole passage is one that's very familiar to many people. Um, many of you may have learned this in the King James, which says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the New American Standard Similarly, not the exact same wording, but similarly says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And both of those are setting before us an example. Here's what Christ's mindset is like. Here's his attitude. You have this same kind of attitude, this same kind of mindset. Certainly the Christian is to follow and to imitate Christ. Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 through 28, Jesus says, It is not this way among you, lording it over each other, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So very clearly there, he holds himself as an example. This is the pattern that I've set for you. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. You serve one another. In John chapter 13, after washing the disciples' feet, and they're shocked at his activity, he says to them in verses 14 and 15, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Not necessarily in the, the actual activity of, of feet washing. Nothing wrong with that per se. But, but more than the activity, the mindset, the, the humility that was willing when all the disciples are standing around saying, I'm not washing his feet. The humility that picks up a towel and drops to his knees and begins to wash feet. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, we're told to walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering 
and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. First Peter 2, for you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And then a little bit more indirect, but still the same idea. Paul tells us in Ephesians, pardon me, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. I'm following him. You can follow me because I'm following him. There can be no doubt that the Christian is to follow the example of his Lord. And when Paul calls us to humility of mind and then holds Christ in his humility before us, he holds before us a pattern that can and must be followed. But what is the pattern that we're to follow? What what is it that he's saying you need to, to imitate this? You need to follow this pattern. Are we being commanded to follow Christ in some wooden kind of way? Are you expected to walk on water? Well, no. Are you supposed to go and find commercial fishermen and tell them how to fish? Well, no. And you're not expected to die as a criminal at age 33 either, are you? I mean, how many of us have already missed that mark? You know, I've blown that one. It's not a command to follow Christ in a wooden way. Okay, you know, Christ got up and walked to Caesarea. I need to start out from Caesarea this morning. It's not that. But he says, have this mind in you, this mindset, this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the way he thought. This is the attitude that, that you know, regulated how he acted. And we see it in his activity as Paul spells it out for us in the following verses. Have that in you. So we're commanded here to follow the pattern of humility that Christ exemplifies. But we have to be honest, left to ourselves, we have as much of a possibility of following Christ in his humility as we do walking on water. It's just really not in us. We need more than just a command. And we need more than an example. We need power. We need enabling. And I believe that Paul is pointing here to both a pattern that must be followed, but also the enabling that we need. The ESV translates this verse just a little bit differently. And it's helpful. The ESV verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Not just have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, but the mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, because you have been united to Christ Jesus in his burial, death, and resurrection. Let me get the order right. His death, burial, and resurrection. Because you've been united with him, you do have this mindset. And you are to be working that out, which is what he talks about in verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who's at work in you. He's already provided the resource that you need to follow this pattern. So he's not just holding this pattern up as motivation and saying you should be inspired by looking at this. You should. But more than that, you need to see that in 
His coming and humbling Himself, He's provided you with the power that you need to follow His example. So we're without excuse. How will you humble yourself? By following Christ in the power that He's provided. How will you consider others as more important than yourselves? By following Christ in the power that He's provided. Because you've been united to Christ, everything has changed. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. Christ not only gives us an example of humility, but he's also reconfiguring our inclinations. It's as if we're being reprogrammed through this work of sanctification. And it's not linear, is it? It's not, you know, it's more hills and valleys, but he is at work and he will bring his work to completion. So his mindset, his joy, joy in selflessly serving others is becoming the mindset of the Christian as we walk with him. Here is not just then a model, but the assurance of provision made to obey the command that God has given. So the command comes, and then we are given this model. We're given this picture of how Christ has humbled himself. Here's a pattern. And the pattern moves from what Christ was like before incarnation to what he is like in his incarnation. And if we'd see how far he stoops down, Paul first shows us something of where he was before he stoops. I think of um, this ice that was on the ground recently. Um, I've commented this to a few people, so if I've already said it to you, you can pretend I haven't. But my kids were out on this ice running across the yard and they would stop and see how far they could slide. And I was walking like little bitty steps, trying not to fall down to see how far I could walk before I fell several times. I wasn't running and just trying to slide and, and see how far I could get. I was just trying not to fall. And I think part of it, I know some of it's age, but some of it also is like getting up. I have a lot further to get up, you know. They fall down. They don't have very far to get up. I have to get up further. Christ stoops. But he doesn't stoop, you know, from a height of here. He stoops from infinity. He stoops from, you know, a measureless height. So the stooping is, is tremendous. It's just mind-boggling because not only the depths to which he stoops, but from where he starts. And so Paul starts there. Look at where he was. And he continues to be. But look where he starts. And he begins in verse 6. With the words. Who although he existed. In the form of God. Did not regard equality with a God. Did not. Pardon me. Who although he existed in the form of God. Did not regard equality with God. A thing to be grasped. This verse. And the ones that follow are verses that have been deb debated for centuries. I've already told you that you know, they've been used in the fight against 
several heresies. And um, so they've been debated by both sides of those heresies. And other things also, volumes have been written about this. And we don't have time to even list all the different arguments, much less try to make any sense of them. So I'm not going to do that. If you want to wrestle with that kind of stuff, I can point you to resources. But we're not doing that this morning. Some of the issues, though, some of the the questions and, and debate that people have have to do with hard Greek vocabulary and the fact that, again, there's just concepts that are beyond us. There is mystery here. How does an unchangeable God become a man? How do you mix infinite God and finite creation? It's it's mystery. And I'm not going to solve the mystery. So if that's your hope, you're disappointed already. And, you know, there you go. But we will try to grapple with this just a little bit. The first thing that Paul points out in this verse, in verse 6, is that he did exist before the incarnation. Verse 7 and 8 speak of the incarnation. He he becomes in the likeness of flesh. He takes on the form of a bondservant. But before the incarnation, before he comes and takes flesh, before that ever happens, he existed. He didn't begin to exist in Bethlehem. He didn't begin to exist, you know, on that birth date, whatever that date is. He already existed. The eternal Son of God existed eternally. Not just before Bethlehem, but even before the creation of the universe itself. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3, In these last days God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory, and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification Of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. These verses not only express that Jesus existed before creation, but they also express that there's both the reality that the Son, the eternal Word, is a separate person from God the Father. He was with God. And yet, he is a separate person who is equally God. The Word was God. Both of those things are reality. And as a separate person, Jesus, he not only shares the nature and the essence of God, but he is, Hebrews says, 1.3 says, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. The imprint of the Father is on the Son, To such a degree that Jesus could say to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Philip, how long have you been with me? If you've seen me, you've seen him. In Philippians 2.6, Paul uses a different word than he uses in Hebrews. 
He says he existed in the form of God. Understanding what is meant by the form of God is imperative, really, to what Paul's saying here. Form is from a word morphe, and it is a word that John Edie, a Greek scholar from, I believe, Scotland, says denotes shape or figure. It may imply the possession of nature or essence, but it does not mean either of them. Wherever the word occurs in the New Testament, it refers to visible form. Christ is, he existed in the form of God, in the visible representation of God. Now this word only appears three times in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, and Philippians chapter 2, I believe verse 7, where he, he comes in the form of a bondservant. The third place is in Mark chapter 16, verse 12, where Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to two of them, two of the disciples, while they were walking along on their way to the country. And it says he appeared to them in a different form. And it highlights the fact that he's talking about here his appearance and not his nature or his essence. His nature or essence didn't change from before his resurrection to after his resurrection, but his appearance did. And they didn't recognize him. He appeared to them in a different form. In Philippians 2, Verse 6, the emphasis is on the form in which Christ existed before His incarnation. He existed in the form of God. This is set in contrast to what He would look like in His incarnation when He takes flesh. He then took the form of a bondservant. Quite a step. The form of God to the form of a bondservant. But before he took the form of a bondservant in his incarnation, he already existed in the form of God or in the appearance of God. Now, I have to ask you, what does God look like? What is his appearance? Children, does God have a body like man? Don't fail me, children. Does God have a body like man? No. Do you know the rest of it? God is what? All right. God is a spirit. He does not have a body like man, right? Yeah. God doesn't have a body like man. He's a spirit. You can't see him. Even though there are the anthropomorphisms throughout the Old Testament, like the eyes of God being on your, God's arm not being short, his ear not being heavy. They are, it's language to help us to understand, but God doesn't have a body like man. So what then is the form of God in which Christ existed before his incarnation? Well, in the Old Testament, I believe it is his glory. The glory is the outshining of his majesty. It is in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. They build the tabernacle 
They put up the curtain, the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, there is the mercy seat. And above the mercy seat, there's not anything there, but it's the throne of God. What is there above the mercy seat on the throne of God? Nothing. There's no appearance. There's no body there. But there is glory there. The people were led by a pillar of fire at night, by a cloud, a glory cloud in daytime. And when they built that tabernacle, the cloud went and inhabited it. John spoke was it Wednesday night or last Sunday about how the, the camp was arranged and all the tents, you know, each tribe had to be in a specific location. All their tents turned toward the tabernacle. And when the cloud came up out of the tabernacle and began to move, they had to break camp and they would move until the cloud stopped. And when it stopped, they would put the camp back together. That cloud, that fire was a visible expression of the invisible God. It's uh, you know, something the eye can see. It's not God. It's something about his glory, though, that they were allowed to see. After the sin with the golden calf, God wanted to kill the people and start over. And Moses interceded for them and plead with God not to do that for his own namesake. The Egyptians will say, you just brought him out here to kill. Moses prays, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God told him, I can't show you that. But I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and put my hand over you and I'll let you see the, the back part of that. And Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and the, the seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, I'm undone. My eyes have seen the king. What is it that he sees? He doesn't see a figure. But he sees something of the glory of God. Commentator Peter O'Brien says that the form of God is best interpreted against the background of the glory of God, that shining light in which, according to the Old Testament and intertestamental literature, God was pictured. The expression does not refer simply to external appearance, but pictures the pre-existent Christ as clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor. Here's Christ with all the accoutrements of majesty, of, of being a king. It's, it's his glory. And it can't help but shine. Calvin says that this glory, this, this form of God speaks of majesty, his majesty. He says, for as a man is known by the appearance of his form, so the majesty which shines forth in God is his figure. That is the figure of God is his majesty that shines forth. Christ then, before the creation of the world, was in the form of God because from the beginning he had his glory with the Father. Now where does he get an idea like that? Well, think of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 when he prays to the Father, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before creation, I had a glory with you. I'm coming to the end of my work here on earth, my mediatorial work. Glorify me again with that glory. 
Remember again that Hebrews passage, chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of His glory. 1 Corinthians, uh, pardon me, 2 Corinthians 4. God has shown in our faces to show the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Jesus, the second person of the triune Godhead, before His incarnation, existed with the Father in the fullness of the glory of God. The ineffable, magnificent glory that the pre-incarnate Christ shared with His Father, the Father, must inform our understanding of the form of God. Wherever the glory of God existed, Christ existed, clothed in that glory. So, He existed... Oh... We'll go a little bit longer, then we just have to stop. He existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In a passage that's often debated and and hotly contested, one of the most hotly contested points is this. What does it mean when he said he didn't consider this a thing to be grasped? And the problem, one part of the problem is that this is the only place in the New Testament where you find this word. It's not found anywhere in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's not found in very many places outside of the New Testament in, in Greek literature. So there's just not many examples of the word. And so there's questions about whether Paul is saying that Christ is grabbing at something or he already has it. He refuses to grab at it. Or what, what, is, it, what is Paul saying? Well, there is a guy named Roy Hoover who has spent a lot of time researching this word and especially this word, grasp, where it's connected to the word regard or if you're reading the ESV, the word count. So those two words together in a phrase. And he states, In every instance which I have examined, this idiomatic expression refers to something already present and at one's disposal. So not trying to get it. You've already got it. The question in such instances is not whether or not one possesses something, but whether or not one chooses to exploit something. How do you use what you have? You can think of people in positions of power who use their power for selfish gain, who use their power to exploit others. Christ doesn't do that. Christ, who has all power, inestimable glory, does not take that and use it to exploit others or to excuse himself from service to others as if he's above all that and they're really all beneath him, and we are. But rather than do that, it becomes... It's a reason to go and help rather than not go and help. So when the Bible says that Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, it's not saying he let go of something or that he never possessed it and he's trying to get it, but it describes how he uses that that equality with God and the glory that he shares with God. Not for his own position or glory to try to get more. Not to be used for his own advantage. But rather to be used 
for others. 2 Corinthians 8 9 expresses this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He doesn't use his riches to amass more riches as if he could, as if there were riches he didn't already have. But he becomes poor so that you can become rich. Here is the eternal God in the person of the Son. All power is His. His is the place of highest honor and glory. Creation exists for Him. Angels do His bidding. He wants nothing. He needs nothing. He basks in the the delight of His Father. But he does not view any of that as a reason to excuse himself from coming to your aid. And here you are. And here I am. How much honor is owed to you? When Paul tells you, regard one another as more important than yourselves, be honest. Doesn't it chafe just a little bit? Really? Is there not anything that rises up inside of you and questions whether that might be a step just a little bit too far? Are you ever tempted to throw your weight around to get your way? Are you ever tempted to pull rank? We are so tempted to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And then we look away from ourselves to Jesus. And looking at him... We see the honor that is due him. All honor is due him. All honor. We look at the glory that is his. And we look at the infinite gap that exists between us and him. He cannot think more highly of himself than he ought. It's impossible. How could he? His glory cannot be overstated. And then you realize that Jesus does not consider that a reason to get or to make sure that he's not slighted, to make sure that somebody doesn't fail to recognize his significance as he walks about on this earth. but rather it becomes the platform from which he gives. He regards others as more important than himself. He doesn't just look out for number one. He does look out for the interest of others. And when we look at him and we see his glory, a glory that has been his from eternity, 
And we see the gap that cannot be crossed, an infinite gap that exists between us and Him. That alone ought to humble us. We don't compare. We don't you belong in the same sentences. And then you think he humbled himself. Not just to look at us. He does humble himself to look at us. He humbles himself to look on the heavens and the earth that he created. What does he do to look at us sinners? Well, he sends his son to die so that he can. Look at us with favor. And if the sight of His glory ought to humble us, what should the sight of His humility do? Well, I would love to press forward, but there's no way to, um, to do so in a way that is probably helpful for you because of the constraints of time. We'd be here for a while yet. So I think it's probably best just to end there. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father, we love to live as your children. We're grateful for the blessing of being your children. The privilege of being chosen and gifted and empowered. Thank you, God, for calling us and setting us apart. Thank you for the grace that you pour out on us. Thank you for making us to be priests of God, heirs of God, children of God, in the family of God, the church of God. God, we love all that, but God, we do find it hard to humble ourselves. God, forgive us. God, we pray that just this much, just seeing our Lord high and lifted up, exalted, and yet not willing to excuse himself because of the privilege that's his, God, may just that much stir our hearts with love and humble us. God, may it not make us despair, but may it give us feet to run to Christ and to cling to the promises that He has made to give us what we need to do His good pleasure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a doxology from Ephesians 3. We'll be seated for just a moment of silence and then we'll be dismissed. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.